Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Randy Cohen. I teach finance and entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School, and I sit on the board of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I have retinitis pigmentosa, a degenerative condition of the retina. Here on the Dangerous Vision Podcast, we get a chance to talk to people who have something interesting to say about visual impairments and blindness. Do we say albino, or is that not uh, proper terminology anymore? Albinism is a spectrum. Uh, so you can have a person completely um, or oculocutaneous albinism, or you can have people who only have albinism in the eyes. Fernando Albertorio is many things. A person with albinism, a scientist. My teacher looked at me, she's like, oh no. <laughs> you need to study something much more safer, like accounting. A serial entrepreneur as the CEO of the Sunu Band. And then you feel the vibrations. And what's weird is, shockingly quickly, you can just kind of tell what's going on. But today, he is a guest on Dangerous Vision. Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter Group. Um, it's uh, it's it's just so brilliant. Our, our audience couldn't see me playing uh, air guitar today. Unlike Fernando, uh, I don't play the real guitar, but uh, I I rock out in my in my mind. That song um, went to number one on the Billboard charts in 1973. Very very unusual for an instrumental uh, to make it to number one on the pop charts. Why did I choose that for the intro? Of course, Edgar Winter and his uh, brother Johnny, uh, great rock and blues men, uh, are the most uh, famous uh, rock stars and uh, I don't know perhaps some of the most famous people uh, with albinism and and I guess we should we should mention that uh, uh, Fernando our guest uh, uh, has albinism and and do we say albino or is that not uh, proper terminology anymore I know that sometimes uh, what what words are used for people change over time sure albino's fine and person with albinism very good and so so Tell, tell us more about it, because I think it's something, frankly, that, that people know very little about. I admit that pretty much the sum total of what I know about albinism is, you know, A, pale skin and hair and eyes, uh, B, often leads to blindness or difficulty seeing, and C, Edgar and Johnny Winter. Uh, so if, uh, if you can share more with our audience than that, then uh, you'll be doing us all a service. Awesome. Well, um, persons with albinism or albinism uh, is a recessive condition, um, genetics. So I am one of four. Um, siblings, and I got the lottery there. <laughs> and also Puerto Rico, um, the island off the Caribbean, um, U.S. territory is, is actually the world capital for populations and in, in population-wise uh, for persons with albinism. I had no idea. And so tell me about the experience. I mean, that, obviously, there, you know, I, I guess, uh, I don't know if ironic is the right word for it, but, uh, you know, my understanding is that, that uh, people with uh, albinism ha- have to be very careful of the sun uh, and so forth, and obviously Puerto Rico famous for its uh, sunny climb. Uh, is, that, is that right? And, and did, was that dealable with just, you know, kind of sunscreen, or did you kind of have to stay indoors a lot growing up? Well, um, Funny you mentioned that. I mean, I can growing up uh, being Albino in Puerto Rico. I mean, you obviously have the sun, um, lots of sunscreen, clothing, hats, uh, shades, sunglasses. I tried all, all sorts of sunglasses or tints for my glasses as well. Uh, and also living, as you mentioned, with the low vision um, and other conditions that are associated with albinism. Albinism is a spectrum, uh, so you can have a person completely um, or oculocutaneous albinism. That means skin and, and albinism within the eyes, so the lack of pigment. 
Um, or you can have people who only have albinism in the eyes, uh, ocular, ocular albinism, but they are, can be other type of skin tone and colors. Do we know much about where it comes from? You know, with a lot of um, things that happen to people, there are uh, stories, sometimes I think well-confirmed stories and other times more speculative, that sort of say, oh, well, the reason for this is that it's beneficial in this other way. I mean, you know, famously people will say, um, oh, sickle cell anemia uh, is an element that happens to people from Africa, and that's because it, it, it's a related to a defense against malaria. Um, and so it may have been selected for, even though in other circumstances it may be uh, a negative. Um, is albinism something that we understand uh, why it might have evolved? Yeah, so albinism evolved since, um, well, way back in, uh, you, you have folks in Africa having al albinism, but it's also expressed in other species from snakes to to a different type of, of animal species, mm. even have um, some aquatic life having albinism in birds. Mm. Um, and I regularly post those on my Facebook feed. Uh, so it actually is um, becoming more understood. Uh, there are also a variety of other medical conditions or rare diseases associated with albinism. Uh, one of them is the hermaski pulak uh, syndrome. Um, so the, the hermansky uh is a condition within albinism that could lead to lower uh, pulmonary function, uh, other respiratory issues as well, uh, due to the due to the deterioration of the um, uh, of the platelets, and as well as within the generation of fibrosis, uh, pulmonary fibrosis within the uh, respiratory system. Mm. So it, it, it sounds sounds uh, like uh, you know not quite a barrel left. Are there are there any uh, any upsides to it? So, I mean, like, there's a lot of upsides to being albino. I mean, I love, um, you know, the condition. I, I think that um, it gets you, <laughs> I mean, it gets a lot of attention. Um, growing up in Puerto Rico, being different, I mean, I, got, I, just, I just basically enjoyed it. Um, you know, in school, I wasn't worried about people bullying me or, that, or anything like that. And even, even as they tried, they had a very interesting time dealing with me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is, unfortunately, a, a bit of a social stigma uh, with uh, with persons with albinism, have we seen them portrayed in in pop culture and movies as kind of the evil uh, bad guy, uh, like in the Da Vinci Code, right? Um, or have we seen them uh, portrayed as the butt of many of the jokes in certain comedies? And uh -huh. so, pop culture tends to view persons with albinism uh, and portray them in a light that is, you know, I'm like, come on, uh, there's a lot more to it, like in music and, and even in, in, uh, in, in, in supermodels who have albinism and you see them on the runway and you don't even know that they have albinism mm -hmm. until it's mentioned out that, yeah, you know, this person is albino. Now, is there, in fact, I, I guess there's an image that people have exactly the thing you're talking about in terms of movies and all of Albion. I know people as, as um, you know, not only being pale, but also very tall and thin. Is that something that comes with a condition or is that something that's just sort of invented by, um, you know, artists who, you know, think that those uh, those physical characteristics sort of should naturally go with paleness so that they cast those characters in, in films and stuff? No, oh, that's, that's, that's just generally invented by, by pop culture. And, 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 you know, we see that as well. I mean, it, there are people maybe in the Nordic countries who are pale, thinner, uh, but may not even be albino. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you, you know, we have all sorts of shape sizes um, for persons with a condition.
And so, um, so uh, obviously, you know, this is dangerous vision. So we're going to talk some about blindness, low vision, and of course, we're going to get involved in uh, in your work as an engineer um, and uh, and uh, your incredible uh, company and, and product, Sunu. Uh, so there's there's lots and lots to talk about today. But you know, since since you're the first um, albino guest we've had, I, you know, I just want to dig into just a little more before we turn to some of the other topics. Is um, uh, do you want to do you have any involvement in the sort of in Albinism as a, as a cause, sort of you know beyond just obviously managing managing your own life. Uh, are there are there organizations, other things you want to tell us about? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot. I, actually, so growing up in Puerto Rico, I, I I spent a lot of my time trying to blend in, trying to trying to just you know kind of um, you know be one of the guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, funny enough, in you know um, being Puerto Rican and standing out uh, as albino, but I used to go to the beach and try to do you know surfing with my friends and whatnot, and you know I had to lather on the sunscreen, of course. But it wasn't until I I went and got my first job at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, where I literally bumped into the world's leading expert in uh, albinism research. This is one of the hidden advantages of low vision is you you literally bump into lots of people as opposed to, you know, having to manufacture some excuse to meet them. You you just accidentally bump into them. It's just part of the yeah, drill. Yeah, for me, it worked out great because uh, <laughs> then he followed me to my lab and I was working in the lab at that time and he followed me and Bill, his name is Bill Gall, Dr. Gall. And um, he was leading the, the, he leads the major study in, in hermansky pudlak syndrome and albinism. And he's like, you're working here? And I'm like, uh, who are you? <laughs> that was our, kind of our first introduction. And he was great. And he got me into the lab. Um, he started uh, basically telling me about his research. And at first I was like, whoa, you know, what is all this uh, other conditions and genetics? And and I just took to it. I loved it. I loved learning about it as well. As then he asked me, like, would you um, help with other people that come from Puerto Rico to the NIH? Because we're, we're leading this study. We're the only ones in the world doing this study. We need help. And that's where I got activated into into helping out with the study, mm-hmm. uh, meeting the families who are coming in, um, you know, with their with their child with albinism uh, to get tested for different different conditions, um, as well as helping with the orientation and stuff, uh, doing doing anything I, I could. Uh, and then a couple of years later, when I moved to New England, I, I met up with uh, with some uh, some other folks who are running the organizations for albinism, the Hermansky Pudlak Syndrome Network. Um, did a bit of volunteering there as well, and attended the conference, um, their annual meeting. Um, I wish I had more time to go to all of them, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, such as the way, you know, with work and everything, but, um, I try to keep up and do as much as I can. I've done work with, uh, with, uh, Noah, like at helping out at, you know, at conferences or I find them at, at other events that I go to as well for my company. And so, uh, we're there in the same space, talking to the, to the same people, trying to keep up as well as provide information for those families who, who, like my mother and and father found out that their child has albinism uh, and then what what do we do where are the resources and that could be very overwhelming for a person who recently has a a child with albinism is it is it it obvious when a baby's born or is it something that you realize later oh it's pretty it's pretty obvious yeah and so um so do you have anything to share so this could go two directions you could either say look here are the top three things that you need to know if you know somebody uh with albinism 
and uh, you know who who's not getting the help they need or whatever. Or you could say here are here's the top one or the top three places that you should go and look for information if you need it, just so people can pass the word because that's you know one of the main functions I'm hoping here. Obviously, we hope to inform people to entertain them, but a big part of what we'd like to do with Dangerous Vision is uh, to just make information available to people who might not uh, have the easiest ways to find access. Agree. So uh, first of all, for those new parents, don't freak out. Don't panic. Mm -hmm. Number two, uh, there are a wide variety of resources online. Uh, NOAA, the National Organization for Albinism and Hegel Fragmentation, uh, or NOAA, N-O-A-H dot org, as well as the HPS Network, our Hermansky-Pudlock Syndrome Network. Uh, they're out of New York. They're amazing. They have chapters uh, in Puerto Rico, as well as in the uh, New England area and across the U.S. So uh, they're great to work with. They also sponsor and are pushing the boundaries of the research, uh, providing grants to uh, researchers across the various universities here. You know, tell us a little about about your life journey, and I guess tell us a little about what you see and what you saw when you were young. You know, whether you've always had uh, low vision or whether it was sort of normal and and got worse, like mine, or what. Coming up on Dangerous Vision. If there's anything I, I, I take away from all this is that my mom was a, a fierce advocate. Using radar and augmented reality, Sunu Band enables people who are low vision and blind to travel with confidence. It starts to feel, I don't want to exaggerate and say it feels like seeing because that would be a little too strong. Advanced haptic feedback guides your way around any obstacle and navigation sensors connects you to the world that's around you. And then you feel the vibrations. And what's weird is shockingly quickly, it's kind of, you can just kind of tell uh what's what's going on but first life as a blind person by executive director of the massachusetts association for the blind and visually impaired sassy outwater right this tip is about holiday cards or any card that you need to sign and if you have to do multiples of the same card this tip really works well take the card and take a piece of blank card stock and you might want a little bit of sighted assistance for part of this. Maybe not. Maybe you're more talented than I am. But go ahead and make sure that the card stock and the card type that you're using are exactly the same size. Then find out where the signature box or space, blank space is for your signature on the card that you will be signing. Then you cut the card stock to be a large signature guide. So the, the signature guide actually appears right over the same space of the card every single time and it's a perfect template to match the cards that you're going to be signing but once you have that template then all of your cards are since you just put it down match it up corner to corner and go ahead and sign and each card will be the same that's life as a blind person i'm sassy at water right i grew up in puerto rico um we moved at an early age well, as soon as as soon as my mom my dad were told that I have albinism and I'm also going to, uh, I'm basically going to be low vision, legally blind, and may be completely, completely blind, uh, blind by adulthood. Uh, so what we did is we immediately moved to um, Fort Lauderdale, mm -hmm. uh, and my mom started looking for resources there. Uh, this is back in the in the um, early early eighties, so I'm going to date myself a little bit here. Mm -hmm. uh, the resources were very minimal. Basically, they they looked at us and and they said, "Well, you know, you have a flashlight, uh, a handheld magnifier." and a white cane mm. uh, and here you go good luck yeah um, school resources were very minimal the, the fact they wanted to put me in special education so this is in now this is in puerto rico or in or in fort this lauderdale in even in, in fort lauderdale they're, they're like oh okay you can't see you must be dumb 
Exactly. <laughs> so, so they really wanted to put me in, in special ed. My mom, uh, if there's anything I, I, I take away from all this is that my mom was a, a fierce advocate mm-hmm. and she taught me from a very early age to learn how to speak up for myself. And you can be polite, but you need to know what to ask and when to ask for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a fantastic experience growing up and, and going to school in Puerto Rico. By fifth grade, I already knew what to ask my teachers for. I said, you know, I would tell them, like, I need to be upfront. Uh, I need a reader. I need this and this and this. And, you know, I basically had my handheld magnifier. And, um, you know, it took me all the way through through fifth grade to, to my senior year in high school. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I got a lot was uh, my parents taught me to be independent. And my father, um, who passed away recently, we just interned him uh, last week, um, he was a pilot for the Air Force. He was a veteran. Mm-hmm. And he took me flying from a very early age, got me on an airplane. And, you know, you would think, you know, why would he do that with the kid? And, and that's when you became the world's first blind pilot. <laughs> I wish I would have been a pilot, but <laughs> he got me on the, he got me on Just the, kidding, folks. We did not, we did not, uh, we're not, we're not advocating for blind people to be pilots yet. Not yet, not yet. But um, so he got me on the airplane, and he he would teach me uh, about aviation. My dad had this little love for science and this this constant curiosity for you technology, and that's where I got my of, my love for science and, and technology, and and, and also so being able to be up in the air with my dad and and taking the controls of an airplane. When I got down, I felt like, wow, I could do anything. And you know. Uh, funny enough, I was I was taking a flight back um, from California, and I read an article that there's a group of a flight school out of the UK that's actually taking um, people who are blind or visually impaired up on airplanes for half an hour and allowing them to take the controls and and providing them that experience of flight. Uh, the main idea is that if you can do that, it empowers a self-confidence, motivation, uh, opens up a bunch for the person who, who's experiencing wow. that. That's really cool. I actually then um, went and, you know, I got so hooked at the flying that I would hang around the airport on Saturdays with my dad. And even he was busy doing stuff. I would just like see which friend of his was coming up on the airplane. And I would just be like, hey, I'll wash your car if you could give me a, uh, an hour with you on the, on, on the plane. So <laughs> I was really hooked onto it. Um, and in high school, uh, I discovered chemistry uh, through one of my, one of my teachers and fell in love with uh, the sciences and chemistry, especially. She took me to the university um, there. We got to see some of the labs. And by the time I was ready to graduate high school, I already knew that I wanted to be a chemistry major. When I showed up to my lab course, general chemistry, my teacher looked at me. She's like, oh, no, <laughs> you need to study something much more safer, like accounting. Mm. And I, okay, so 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 she wasn't worried that you couldn't do it. She was worried that if you made a mistake, the uh, uh, explosions would occur. That's basically it. So interesting, right? I hadn't thought of it that way. I thought she was going to say, "Oh, you're not going to be able to tell the blue powder from the green. You're going to fail your classes." But she was thinking chemistry labs are dangerous, uh, dangerous she, places. She was basically like, "Yeah, you know, you you should think about an alternative career. You know, think about accounting or you know, studying business or something." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at that time I really wanted to study chemistry and I told her like, look, I'm going to not only do the labs and be your best grade on the lab, I'm going to do them safely. And just by the end of the semester, you'll see this. I mean, in fact, give me a month. And in fact, I, I did that. I was the highest. Grade. And when she got out of the hospital after the explosion, she admitted that no, just- no, no explosions, no shrapnel, no chemical burns. Um, even in my even in my 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 15 year career in, in chemistry and the sciences, I've never had a lab accident. Uh, knock on wood. 
Yeah. Um, it's been, it's been good. I mean, I've, it, it is, it is, you have to have respect for it when you're working in the lab and understand what you're getting into. Um, and I applied safety all the time. But when I was going through my undergraduate in chemistry, I had a handheld magnifier and I had my bioptic glasses um, that would take me through lab and courses and stuff. And that was my that was my piece of access technology. And then when I was finished um, my degree, I went in and, and got an opportunity to, to work at the NIH as a research fellow. And working in the research lab again, my first day arriving into the lab and my my PI looks at me and says, oh, I wish I would have known um, about your your condition. He, he's an MD PhD, so he immediately knew that I have albinism. Mm. And he said, "I wish I would have known that you that you, you have albinism and that you're legally blind, because I would not have hired you." Nice. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> here we go again. It's and always I'm good like, when people come right up front with the Americans with Disabilities Act violations. So basically, uh, chemistry was too easy. So you said, "Well, geez, this is trivial. I got to go to physics, which is even tougher." Is that was that the kind idea? of? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I'm a sensors nerd. So what happened was that when I was at NIH, I, I, I got into this whole field of sensors. Um, Apologies to all the chemists out there. I know chemists hate the fact that the physicists think that physics is harder than chemistry. But, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I was a math major. So, of course, the math guys think that, you know, math is harder than physics and physics is harder than chemistry and chemistry is harder than biology. It's a it's a, uh, you know, sort of pathetic, immature way of looking at the world. But, uh, you know. Here I am. I have to think about this, uh, sharing this podcast with my friends who are chemists. But um, um, when I was uh, finishing my degree in chemistry, I was really, I'm really passionate about sensor technology and, you know, worked in all different types of sensor applications, a project with the DARPA, with the um, Naval Research Labs and um, Harvard University. Um, there was a group here, the physics department that was doing great research in, in gene sequencing. And that's kind of the area that, that I was excited about. It was really in, in back in 2006. And so I applied and, and I uh, got the position here and, and got a grant and fellowship from the NIH to do independent research here. Uh, so I switched over um, because of the type of research that was happening and it happened to, to be in physics. And it turned out that I had two two principal investigators. One was from biology. The other one was uh, from from the physics department. Mm -hmm. The um and so so tell me about you know how that research led to where you are now. Eventually, we want to get to uh, to uh, Sunu. Of course. So while I was at Harvard, we were we were creating machines for rapid gene sequencing, kind of read your DNA like a hard drive and spit out the result at the doctor's office so that you can know what you know what what uh, potential disease you'll have in your fifties. Uh, that was the whole idea behind uh, behind the lab. I uh, got to do a lot of electronics um, and develop kind of a passion for for uh, creating all sorts of like analog electronics and sensor devices. Um, it wasn't until like 2010 where you know this is right around the time where the bubble broke, and I'm thinking here I am thinking you know what am I going to do for my academic career? You know positions are drying up, um, not much opportunities in in research and science uh, because of all these the whole economy going down uh, under. And, and I, I went to MIT and I took this uh, course called the nuts and bolts of entrepreneurship. And that kind of like really hit me right there. Like I had this my aha moment where like, Oh, maybe I'm much better of an entrepreneur than a scientist because I'm always asking like, what's the application for this? How's this going to, going to reach broader, you know, we're talking about this, uh, we're making machines for rapid gene sequencing. How's this going to get productized? How's this going to get sold to the doctor's office? Who's going to pay for this? And there were questions that I was asking that pretty much everyone in my lab and my PI would tell me that, you know, Hey, don't worry about that. That's not your concern. You know, just did the basic research. Mm -hmm. And I was never content with that. 
Uh, and so back in 2010, 11, I, I uh, teamed up with another fellow who took the class and we created my first startup. And was it, that gene sequencing stuff? No, it actually had nothing to do with, uh, with science. Okay. Um, it was a, it was a marketing platform for publishers and authors. Okay. And uh, so the point is somebody writes a book and you're going to help them sell the book. Exactly. So we, we, we had, we had analytics data. Uh, we use uh, kind of, this was like before big data was a, was a thing. Uh, so we're using data analytics of, of readers, uh, trying to understand what type of, what kind of readers you have and then how you target them for the next book. Uh, so one of our products, basically the product that I created, um, you know, was being used by a U.S. major publisher, uh, in New York. They loved it and they acquired it. And then in 2014, that's, uh, where I met my colleague, Michael Trujillo, who's the creator of Sunu. Uh, he showed me the first Sunu band, which is a prototype, was a rubber prototype with two buttons. Yeah. Uh, it had a sonar sensor and a vibrating motor to attach to it. And I saw this and I'm like, I was immediately fascinated by it because again, it's a sensor, it's transducing information back to the person. Um, and I, that's, that's where I got hooked. And now is that is now is is Sunu named for uh, former New Hampshire Governor uh, John Sununu? No, it's not. No, t- total coincidence. Okay, just checking. <laughs> yeah, the word Sunu actually comes from the from uh, Mayan word uh, uh, Sunu. Uh, it actually means hummingbird. It means what? It means hummingbird. Hummingbird. Oh, very nice. So the hummingbird, you know, it could it could hover, and and it's an amazing creature. I mean, it it has the fastest heartbeat. It can um, hover, go back and forth, up, down, yeah. uh, on a dime. And so because we were looking branding wise, we want to, you know, what do we want to do? We want to empower mobility. We want to empower that independence. And so we looked at the hummingbird. We're like, wow, this is a good match. Yeah. If you could be as mobile as a hummingbird. That's right. That's uh, that's it. Well, so so tell our listeners, you know, I've I've worn Sunu. So so uh, I have a I've, I have an idea here. But uh, tell tell the users about it. I mean, tell the tell the listeners about it who hopefully soon to be users. Sure. So Sunu, Sunu is a technology company based here in Boston and Guadalajara, Mexico. And we create wearable IoT mobile um, technologies to help empower mobility, navigation, and independence for those of us who are either blind or low vision, partially sighted. Um, the Sunu uh, band is We like our, to say people with dangerous vision here on the podcast. Correct. People with dangerous <laughs> vision. That's right. Um, so our flagship, our flagship product uh, it's called Sunu Band, and it's a smart band that uses sonar to detect essentially everything that's in the environment. Uh, with Sunu Band, it uses echolocation or this sonar technology to detect objects in the environment and then relay haptic vibration feedback to the user to improve their awareness to these obstacles. So, as you know, it turns out that, you know, obstacles bumping into things is a frequent occurrence. Um, even if you're using the white cane, the guide dog, there are things that that the traditional aids can miss, uh, especially those overhead obstacles or, or things to the upper body and chest. And so our product, what it does is it, it helps extend awareness beyond the reach of your cane or beyond the guide dog uh, to these obstacles that could be a nuisance during your everyday travel. And we want to enhance your awareness to the things that are within your environment. So it detects things up to 16 feet away uses, again, haptic feedback to provide that information in a way that is subtle. Uh, it's not obtrusive, but yet informs you to these obstacles that may be around you so that then with that information, you can figure out how to navigate around it and avoid uh, bumping into anything that you don't want to bump into. So for the, for the listeners, I, I, all I can say is you just have to try this thing. What is the Sunuban? The Sunuban? 
is a smartwatch for the blind and low vision. Sunovan uses echolocation technology to sense the user's surrounding and can detect objects up to 5 meters away. Sunovan enhances perception and awareness via haptic vibrations that inform the users about how close or far away they are to an obstacle. And then you feel the vibrations. And what's weird is, shockingly quickly, um, it starts to feel, I don't want to exaggerate and say it feels like seeing because that would be a little too strong, but you just kind of, you can just kind of tell uh, what's what's going on in front of you because you kind of, you, you sense the pattern of vibrations. And our brains, like there's so many things our brains are terrible at, but what we are really good at is pattern recognition. Like that's the thing I guess that was super important on the savanna to see, wait a minute, you know, the, the grass is, is not waving in the way that it waves in the wind. It's waving in the way when there is, you know, a predator uh, walking through that high grass, you know, and we're really good at recognizing these, these patterns. So you just start to feel like you are painting the world and then the world is, is, is telling you what's out there and uh, you just got to try it. And, uh, and as you mentioned, you know, by, by turning your wrist, by making those subtle mo- motions, uh, you can... You can get an idea as to what's around you. One of my one of our users says that you know it's like an extension of my senses now, mm-hmm. and uh, using the Cinderband, I can imagine where the doorway is, the gap is. Uh, I'm able then to to identify the room, uh, to start thinking about where things are in that space. When we think about assistive assistive devices for 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 folks with dangerous vision, it's it's like a tool. You have a, you have each one has their own toolkit, mm-hmm. right? We, exactly. We, we may look around different. Different size toolkits, but in my toolbox, I know what I have in my toolbox. Randy's toolbox is different, and so someone else's toolbox is completely different. They may have more aids in there. Um, you know, one of the things that we consistently hear is like, you know, I've got my cane, I've got my IRA, I've got this, I got my Sunuban now. That's a lot to carry, right? So early on, we started thinking about Sunu as a platform, where now as a smart band. Uh, we could leverage apps or other applications, whether made by us or by third parties, to then deliver that to the user. Uh, so one example, we started playing around with this platform idea uh, in terms of like making it, like first of all, how you tell time. Uh, so providing the, the, the haptic watch feature. Um, that's one less thing that you have to carry around, which is a, a, an actual talking watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Cineband, you can choose to use it as a talking watch or or a, vib- a vibratory watch as well. The um, so you talked about personal toolkit. My personal toolkit is up on uh, the Dangerous Vision website, which I, I haven't mentioned much on the podcast, but I would like to mention uh, www.dangerousvision.com. All that's there basically are links to uh, the the stuff I carry every day, um, and it's just you know uh, my way of sharing. You know, I'm not uh, you know not going out and reviewing a thousand different products. There may be better things out there. If people know of better things, I'd sure love to hear about it. Uh, but these are the devices uh, that I carry. You know, I have my iPhone. I carry a uh, a, 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 a you know power bank uh, with me. I generally buy uh, from uh, Anchor. I've had the best uh, success with that with that brand. And I have several different sizes for you know different lengths of trip and and different circumstances. I have my cane from Chris Park Design, so on and so forth. So I, I have my toolkit, and it's all up on the web. Uh, do you want to tell us about your toolkit, Fernando? Sure. So my toolkit um, just recently um, got a uh, Ambitech cane, so I'm excited to be taking some O and M. Very important uh, skills that you know. As, as I'm getting older, I'm noticing that also my 
my site's uh, deteriorating a bit more. So you never know what's going to happen in the future. And, my, and, and I'm thinking, you know, I better have all those skills. Um, and I've been taking a bit of O&M for, for the past a year or so. Uh, but now really kind of hunkering down and getting, getting those, getting, getting those important skills done, mm-hmm. uh, for me as well, personally. So just recently added a, a nice bright blue Ambitech cane to my collection. I've got my handheld magnifiers and I, and I also, um, am soon going to be getting the architect bioptic as what? well as my Sunu band. What is that? What's the, what's the bioptic? Uh, the bioptic is a clip on bioptic for your glasses. Uh, okay. so it allows you to 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 have further sight for for like reading signs or menus i see um yeah it's really cool and then obviously my sunu band um and my my uh, sunu app and and my iphone and the iphone of course any any uh any apps that you've you know come across in the last six or 12 months that have been really uh uh, game changers for you so i um i've been enjoying using uh microsoft scene ai Mm-hmm. And um, I can't I mean, decide if it's supposed to be pronounced seeing AI or seeing I like like in a pun on AI. I mean, they're both puns on on I, but it's probably AI. I mean, spelled AI, but you can see that if you just say AI as one word, it's like I. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I always refer to it as seeing AI, but um, yeah, I think heard people right. say it the same way. Yeah. And uh, and then recently, just playing around with uh, Soundscapes, I had a chance to actually meet the uh, the inventors, creators of Soundscape. We had a great chat with them oh, neat. Uh, the the other week. So I've been I've been playing around with those apps. Uh, Did they tell us anything to look forward to on Soundscape but that's they, uh, that's coming? Not yet. They haven't said anything yet. They've been pretty tight lipped about that. All right. Well, what do you use uh, the CEAI for mostly? Oh, I, I I primarily play around with it. Um, like um, when I'm at a supermarket or want to see something, mm-hmm. um, identify something in the in the grocery store or aisle. So if you point it at a bag of flour, it'll it'll say bag of flour. It'll say the brand. What, what, what will it tell you? It'll mainly say article on shelf. Sometimes it's hit or miss. There's a new app uh, actually created by a fellow here in Boston called SuperSense. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. That's one of the that. ones I've been playing with. And I, I thought you know, it was really, really interesting what's what's going on there. And that, that I think uh, could be a real a real game changer for folks in terms of uh, walking around. I mean, if you had Sunu combined with, with SuperSense going uh, and a cane, uh, you could probably wander around pretty confidently and really, you know, feel like, uh, you know, really come across the world like a person who knows where they're going you know um fernando thank you so so much for being on the show i I've got you know we didn't get to talk about mass association for the point where we're on the board together i don't know any anything and you want you got a, you got anything you want to throw out i don't really talk that much this is of course a production of mass association uh for the blind uh you know david uh works there and and you know they do incredible uh work um <clears throat> to which i uh contribute as a board member staggeringly little um but uh but fernando you've been on the board do you have anything you want to share about MAB or MABV uh, before we sign off? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to be on the board and, and be working with an amazing group. Uh, team is so dedicated uh, to the mission of the organization. Uh, highly recommend that if you're in the area, to please come out, check out Vibrant, uh, the, te- the Assistive Technology Centers. Mm. Uh, if I mean, just... Even even just a few minutes that I was there, I I, I was volunteering for a couple hours um, a week, and I was supposed to get I got a lot out of it, 
more than I, I think I was doing for them as well. But um, it was super helpful. Um, so yeah. please check out Vibrant and support that. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Sassy Outwater, right? Our, our executive director is, is just uh, really uh, dedicated. She's she's a, you know, a, a physicist and engineer herself. And, and uh, you know, she's so dedicated to the idea of uh, the technology can do so much for people. Um, and uh, and that's an idea, of course, Fernando, that you and I uh, strongly share. And uh, we, you know, one thing we've learned, I think, or at least I've I've learned, and my guess is uh, probably you, you've had a similar experience to me, is that um, you know there are a lot of uh, a lot of people who are blind for one reason or another are, are not that ready to embrace technology. A lot, of, of course, a lot of people who lose their sight are much much older, um, and you know just technology just may not have been a big part of their lives the way it has for for you as a scientist and and for me as a you know finance professor and and so forth. And um, and so what's so amazing about uh, about the team and Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired is is uh, what they're able to do to you know take technologies that that are themselves already incredible uh, breakthroughs like what you're doing at Sunu, um, but to take the next step and say yeah, but. We are also going to make it so that it's not just, uh, you know, gadget freaks like Randy and Fernando who love new technology and are always ready to try out the latest thing. But we're going to take people who normally, uh, you know, are pretty uncomfortable embracing uh, new technology and we're going to help them uh, to get the most out of it. And so I, I just, you know, can only, uh, um, you know, uh, echo uh, Fernando's point that, uh, you know, please, you know, come in and, uh, you know, if you know people uh, who have vision issues and, and you know, aren't, aren't getting all the assistance they need from from the world, like come, come see the folks in Mavi because uh, they're they're doing miraculous things. Well, thanks so much again, uh, Fernando, for being here with us today on Dangerous Vision. This was uh, this was a blast. It's always great to hang out with you, and uh, it's even better to uh, be able to hang out with you with an audience. Thank you so much, Randy. It's a pleasure being on the show. You've been listening to the Dangerous Vision podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm David Brown. 